Okay, so this is Yester Ladies, and I am Dana Cornwall. And I'm Heather Green. And this week, we're going to be talking about the Supremes. They were the Supreme musical group at their time. That is very true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> that is a great way to start. <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate that. <laughs> I think they were the Supreme musical group of their time, or one of them anyway. One of them, yes. Yeah. Yes. So their name was very appropriate. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we were debating ways to kind of introduce this this topic this week and kind of, I don't know, hook our audience <laughs> in. And um, I guess, I mean, the reason I, because this is my kind of uh, suggestion for a podcast uh, this week, um, it came out of the fact that I recently finally visited Hitsville, USA in Detroit with my dad a few weeks ago which was kind of a I don't know it was kind of an epoch in my life as Anne of Green Gables would say <laughs> whoa I didn't realize it was that significant Dana. yes yes well I I mean uh, I we haven't really mentioned the fact so far I think that um, we are from Windsor Ontario which is just across the border from Detroit we're separated um, from Detroit by just a mile wide river the Detroit River appropriately enough (laughs) and um so you know our parents um were baby boomers and my dad in particular grew up um you know listening to Motown and all that music from the 60s and 70s and it had a big impact on him and it's some of his favorite music ever and uh consequently he used to play that music a lot for me when I was little and uh it was always something that you know I think we felt connected over. Um, he used to, I, I still swear that my dad would, um, would have loved to have been a, a pip. <laughs> One of Gladys Knight's uh, <laughs> pips. <laughs> or, of course, The Temptation. Um, and, uh, yeah, we always kind of shared that. And it's it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, the fact that I'm now over 30 and neither my father nor I had ever been to Hitsville before, which um, I keep saying Hitsville USA, that's the Motown Museum in Detroit, uh, which is actually the um, original headquarters for Motown. And it's in this tiny little house uh, (laughs) in a, um, you know, not a super posh area of Detroit. Um, And uh, that was where Barry Gordy got his start. And he started, you know, buying up houses along that stretch Mm -hmm. as they started getting busier and then eventually moved the business to downtown Detroit and then eventually moved it out to LA. But this little house um, was where it all started. And so that's now the Motown Museum. And uh, so finally, dad and I got over there just a few weeks ago and it was it really was a rather moving experience for it's both wonderful. of us. Yeah. It's like a touching father-daughter it was. Uh, trip across the border. It was very yeah. special. Yeah. It really was. <laughs> um, and uh, so that, I mean, I like I said, I've always loved this music. And it's it's just some of my, I think it's just, it's classic. All mm-hmm. of the, the Motown hits are just kind of timeless um, in the American songbook, as they say. And um, what was particularly moving for me, I mean, the whole thing. I know you've been. And... Um, yeah, I way. took a sorry, I took a student group there um, as a tour guide, and mm-hmm. so it was my first time visiting as well. Um, and I was taken aback with how much I enjoyed it. I hadn't expected to enjoy it as much as I did, and uh, I remember also being impressed, like you said, by how small the houses were. And I liked that rather than immediately move to huge corporate headquarters as soon as they could, they just kept buying up these small houses in this yeah. this pretty down at the heels neighborhood. I thought we were in the wrong spot when the motor coach pulled up and the <laughs> students were looking around sort of confused, like, what are we doing in this small suburb of Detroit? Next to a funeral home. <laughs> Next to, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, but I, I kind of had a moment in the recording studio where I That's... lingered behind the group uh which i'm not supposed to do as a tour guide i should be out front but i was like oh, i just want a moment in here and so all the kids had filed out and i had a minute and i thought this is so neat to be in the room where those recordings were made and like stand in the same spots and it was phenomenal that's what particularly got me and my dad too um the, yeah the way they do it it's you just it's, so anybody is aware, if you're planning now to go to Hitsville, you can't really just show up and wander through by yourself. It's such a small 
museum and it's literally it's this old house that you know they kind of take you through so they can only take groups of I guess about 20 or 25 or so people at a time and I think on particularly busy days I mean we went on a Saturday kind of in the middle of the summer and we unless you have a big group I mean if you do have a big group you can go and buy your tickets ahead of time or order them over the phone or something like that but if it's just you know a couple of people you have to just show up and buy your tickets and we ended up we bought tickets and we had to wait for like how oh, almost three hours before um before we could go back but that's okay detroit's always cool to like you know we we you know kind of went down to the ballpark and wandered around and did different things and then we went back and had our tour but they lead you through and the tour guides are great they're really knowledgeable and they take you through the whole house and like all of the different, you know, areas, a little tiny reception room up front and Barry Gordy's office. And they take you upstairs to where Barry Gordy and his little family lived for a time. And apparently, was it Smokey Robinson used to sleep on the couch because he would be down in the recording studio <laughs> and then didn't want to, it was too late to drive home. So he would like creep upstairs and sleep on their couch. I love stuff like that. And then the finale is, as you say, the recording studio, which... I mean, it just got me like it's this old garage that mm -hmm. they converted into a recording studio and it's kind of chilly and, you know, it's not very, not very slick looking. It's, it's kind of almost dingy. It like, is. It looks like yeah. someone's old rec room that yeah. like, they just happened to put some recording yeah. uh, uh, equipment in and yeah, and like things are dusty and kind of falling down <laughs> yeah. and it's all the you know original stuff that they still have in there including this beautiful piano that apparently um paul mccartney paid to refurbish uh some years ago which was kind of a cool little fact but yeah you go down in there and you stand there and it's like you're in the presence of this of these amazing musical talents over the years and so many hits came out of that studio um it just i mean the the just kind of the homespun way that they did it. Like my, one of my favorite facts is the, one of the distinctive sounds about Motown music is kind of the, that kind of echo grand sound that they get. And apparently like this was of course in the days before auto tune and, you know, electronic, um, you know, uh, editing of music where they can now of course just add in an echo effect wherever they want. But <laughs> at the time they couldn't do that so what they did I thought this was fantastic the recording studio was down kind of you know on the main floor and like down a few flights of steps well they used to wire the sound up to the bathroom and put a speaker <laughs> in there to capture the echo off the tiles in the bathroom and that's how they got that sound which is just the coolest <laughs> thing ever it's so grassroots for something that's such a cultural touchstone now it's such like a simple and uh, like you say homespun way to find that effect i know i love it i just love it <laughs> yeah. so okay we've been going on about motown in general <laughs> for a while now um anyway the point was you know i was recently there i know you were there not not too yeah, too within, long ago and um the past couple of years yeah and you know one of the things that they also mentioned was the fact that a lot of um kind of some of the girls who used to hang around hitsville many of them went on to become you know, major Motown stars would um, serve time as a receptionist, and Diana Ross was one of those uh, one of those that. women. Yeah, yeah, the tour guide mentioned that when we were there. That for, I don't know for how long, but at some point, anyway, she was the receptionist at the front desk at Motown. Um, so of course, that got me thinking about you know a possible podcast topic. And I think when you're thinking about Motown and Yester Ladies, of course. What else but the Supremes? What else? What else? What else? I mean, not to downplay the Marvelettes or Aretha Franklin or <laughs> any of the other amazing, you know, female talents that came out of Motown. But mm. I think, you know, you kind of know without even researching it. And then, of course, it comes out as we're doing this research that the Supremes definitely were the most successful uh, of the Motown girl groups. And actually, in a lot of ways, probably one of the most successful acts, period, out of Motown. Um, and as it turns out, one of the most successful acts out of the sixties. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Particularly female yes. um, groups. So they yeah. really, they really, uh, well represented their gender at that time. Mm -hmm. So that was well, exciting. and 
one of the articles that we looked at, I think it was the Rolling Stone article, mm-hmm. which yep. was really good. That's, I think, you know, we'll put all the resources that we that we looked at for this um, when we post the podcast. We'll, we'll add those, of course. But um, I found the most helpful one was the Rolling Stone piece. It was very thorough and really interesting, and it, it kind of took you through the whole history of the group. Um, but uh, where was I going with that? I don't know why <laughs> I brought that up. Well, kudos to Rolling Stone. Yeah, kudos to Rolling Stone. <laughs> There was something in particular, though. Hmm. Well, I'll mention something. So you were talking about the Supremes uh, going as young ladies or as mm-hmm. as teens to the offices um, of Hitsville, USA. And I, I thought it was so great that their perseverance paid off, that they would go after school. So they would finish yeah. high school, I assume, and then walk down to the offices and just sort of you know lurk around and scrounge for like backup singing gigs and I thought how great is that like what a great message to if you're a teenager or or a young person today and you know just keep trying just keep showing up and eventually you'll kind of get your foot in the door and I I can just picture these like you know three sort of maybe unsure of themselves teenagers like hanging about please you know give us something to do (laughs) Mr. Gordy yeah yeah um yeah, it's a good point. Okay. Uh, so I guess we can kind of, you know, dive into the facts. The facts. Ma'am. Just the facts. <laughs> <laughs> of the Supremes. Um, so they were originally, I love this, <laughs> the Primettes. <laughs> I just loved how they they like to name groups in the 60s. Right? <laughs> and they were called the Primettes because... They were originally kind of a sister group to the uh, predecessor to the Temptations, who were known as the Primes. <laughs> um, and that group was founded by um, two of the guys who would go on to be uh, founding members of the Temptations, Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams. So the Supremes, the girls from the Supremes and the guys from uh, later the Temptations kind of all met in high school and uh, kind of you know, ended up forming this association. So the primates and the primes. Um, so the original primates were Florence Ballard, Diana Ross, and Mary Wilson. And originally they were a quartet, apparently, um, with a couple of other different girls, but eventually they kind of settled into a trio. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, kind of going back a little bit further, originally they all met, I, I imagine, again in high school or maybe even younger than that, mm-hmm in the Brewster housing project in Detroit, which is, you know, a, um, a difficult area, um, at the time and since. Um, so they came from modest, modest backgrounds in Detroit as really, I think all of the Motown stars did. Mm-hmm. Um, they Absolutely. were all, you know, um, pretty, um, yeah, pretty lowly roots yeah. and you know, their, their ascent is even more, cool yes, <laughs> Given, I agree. even more inspirational yeah they came absolutely. from yeah, well and barry gordy himself of course was yep. you know came from pretty modest background although one of the interesting things i i found again when we went to hitsville was learning about his family which uh his both his parents um i thought really cool especially because his mother was a professional she was a real estate agent yeah. and his dad i think had various ventures including at one point a grocery store and he had some kind of construction business i think but they were business people nice. and you know, did well for themselves, um, locally and, um, Barry Gordy kind of eventually ended up deciding to, I don't know, basically become a mogul, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And he did it. He made it happen. Um, so Motown was kind of established in, I believe, 1959. Um, that's when Barry Gordy, you know, got a loan from his family and bought the first house, that house where now you can go and visit and see all this stuff. <laughs> and it's so cool. So he bought that house and started Motown and signed, you know, a certain number of acts. I think uh, Smokey Robinson was one of the first. Um, and, uh, you know, he accrued other groups over the next few years. Um, so eventually the primates were introduced to Mr. Barry Gordy by Smokey Robinson. But, uh, originally, I guess, uh, Gordy thought that they were a little too young to sign. They were still in high school. And as you said, they kind of, you know, all right. So they hung around and, uh, sung backup on, on several other tracks that were released from Motown. Um, but eventually, uh, they were signed in 1961, January 1961, and Barry Gordy suggested they maybe change their name, and I guess it was Florence Ballard who came up with 
the Supremes, which I think is definitely a much better name than the Primates. Definitely. Yeah. I agree. They're not suddenly a second or a backseat group to a, a no. male group. They're their own, right? It's not the Supremes and the Supremettes. It's, yeah. They're the just Supremes. the Supremes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So one of the other things that kind of struck me about doing all this research, have you, you've seen the movie Dreamgirls? Uh, actually, shockingly, I have not. You haven't? But no, but now Heather. after doing, I know, but after doing all this research, I was like, oh, I've got to see that movie now. And now, I mean, now we're doing a podcast on it, so it's like terrible that I have not seen it. But uh, no, it, it really increased my my desire to see that movie. So Well, I, I'll lend it to you. Thank I, you. I own it. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so I, you know, I know that movie fairly well. Mm-hmm. There's some great music in that, and that movie, you know, I mean, the movie, of course, is based on a musical that came out, I think, in the 80s or early 90s, maybe. I forget exactly. Anyway, um, the movie is really, it really is very good. Um, Eddie Murphy does a, an amazing job, and Beyonce, awesome. and yes. like, uh, who else is in that? Who's the other guy? Not Jamie Foxx. No, Jamie Foxx? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Fox? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, and, and what's her name from American Idol? Who Jennifer Hudson ah. is amazing in that. So good. Um, anyway, so that's a great movie and okay. some great music. But I had always kind of thought it's, you know, and you know that it's supposedly kind of loosely, they say, based sure. on the Supremes and Motown and Barry Gordy. Um, I had always assumed that it was as I say, loosely based, but um, I'm actually surprised at how much the facts yeah. do kind of match up with the story in the movie. Okay. Um, so and it's, one, it's not as sensationalized as you had expected? No, okay. it's not. Okay. I mean, it is, you sure, know, sensational. Sure. Like, you know, of course, it's a movie and, right. you know, they, they dress it up and they do all these things. But I was quite surprised at how how similar the story seems to be to you know some of the actual facts Hmm. of the supremes um and one of the kind of the big uh forces in the movie or um, plot points in the movie is what ends up being the kind of antagonism between um beyonce's character and jennifer hudson's character who kind of represent beyonce as kind of the diana ross figure and jennifer hudson is the florence ballard figure and as it turns out um there really was some friction there um apparently florence ballard was kind of originally considered in general the lead singer of the group she had a more soulful sound more like aretha franklin um although apparently diana ross did also sing lead at times they kind of maybe switched a little bit but i guess just kind of in general florence ballard was kind of the de facto leader and it sounds like she was also the one originally with the most ambition and drive to like really make it. Um, so I found that very interesting because this then does go on for the Supremes to cause some friction. And Florence Ballard is a, you know, an unfortunate character really. I mean, she had a rough, a rough go of it and, and a sad ending. Yeah. It's kind of a tragic story. What happens to her? Because she really did seem like the initial, like the first push to create the group and she was sort of the one kind of pushing everyone forward and motivating them and keeping people together and then for her to be the first one um you know to leave the group and to pass away it just seems like such a tragic end that she was the one that started it and then the first to go so yeah yeah, it's unfortunate it is it is it's sad um and I know there was a lot of debate like you said about who was the better singer or the stronger vocalist um, and it kind of always went back and forth depending on which type of voice you yeah. liked better. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. As I said, Florence Ballard, uh, more kind of soulful, yep. um, Aretha type sound. Whereas Diana Ross has, I think arguably when you listen to them, just in terms of like ability, I think mm. Florence Ballard had the stronger voice, but, um, Diana Ross, had this quality, this kind of sophisticated sweetness and maturity. And, um, yeah, she had kind of, there's nobody, there's nobody else sounds like Diana Ross. You know, she isn't, I think technically the best singer out there, but she's very distinct. And I think in the end that, that matters more really Mm. in, in, especially in pop music, you know, you need to have kind of a distinct sound. Distinctiveness. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm interesting yeah (laughs) Yeah. all right well back to the facts 
ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts. <laughs> we can't make that a thing. It's <laughs> really annoying. It, it, ends, it ends here. <laughs> it's the last time. We'll see. Um, so, as I said, uh, the now Supremes were signed in 1961 to Motown. And apparently Barry Gordy, right from the beginning, really saw something in them, particularly Diana Ross. And he kind of groomed them right from the get-go. Now, all of the artists at Motown, um, one of the things that set Motown apart was the way the company really groomed their their stars to be stars. They gave them etiquette lessons. They gave them, you know, like elocution and like special mm. dance training and just all of this stuff. And they kind of, it was this assembly line where they went through appropriately enough for mm-hmm. Detroit, right? <laughs> um, they went through and kind of were produced into very uh, sophisticated stars. And um, mm. that was a major, a major point in in all of those uh, artists favor in that they were kind of set apart from other acts in their sophistication and this mm-hmm. kind of motown stamp of of i don't know almost elegance and mm-hmm. yeah like classiness yeah, yeah sophistication it's very image focused at a yes. time before that was big in the industry so now we just expect that and to a much larger degree than yeah. than they would have experienced but we expect that stars will be groomed and dressed a certain way and, and they'll have all these sort of people around them all the time to to handle that but at that point that wasn't the norm and so yeah. you could arguably say that motown was one of the studios that created that or started that trend absolutely um, for better or for worse yeah yeah Barry Gordy was a pioneer <laughs> certainly was and you can see how successful it was for them right whether oh, yeah and I mean most of it is very positive right yeah elocution and and uh, etiquette I mean these are these are good things I mm-hmm. think usually mm-hmm. so yeah well and I mean I think you can't really talk about Motown without talking about issues of race of course mm-hmm, at absolutely. the time especially um, in the 60s and you know Sadly, I think, you know, one of the reasons that Motown artists were able to be so successful and cross the the color barrier, as mm. they say, was because they were given this kind of makeover that maybe made them more right. palatable to white audiences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they were really the, the first to, to kind of do that on a major scale. I mean, of course, you know, there were major black artists you know previous who were successful and to a certain degree crossed over and were successful in white culture as well but Motown I mean uh, these people became global superstars I mean like I said global (laughs) superstars and they really really transcended in ways that other artists hadn't done um, those kind of those kind of barriers which you know kind of went along with the time and they were part of that time and um so that's you know kind of an interesting facet i guess of of the history of motown yeah it's a little sad that that's necessary because Mm -hmm. like you say they may not have been as palatable to sort of mainstream america at that point if they hadn't gone through that process and i think it's interesting that now musicians um gain credibility by not having that right if you think about like rap or um more urban Mm -hmm. artists sort of the grittier and edgier um you are and sort of the the less polished the more credibility you have that sort of thing yeah um and so like that street cred (laughs) (laughs) um but yes it's interesting that things have kind of swung a little bit in the opposite direction depending what musical genre you're in yeah but uh yeah I, i don't think their stories from uh, the area they were from would have been quite as appreciated <laughs> at that point. So. No, no. Folks <laughs> um, weren't interested in the harsh truth, uh, perhaps, when it was happening all around them with race riots and you know, Detroit yeah. burning and this sort of thing in the 60s. Yeah. Although, um, one of the things, again, in that Rolling Stone article that they talk about, I guess uh, several members of the Supremes in later years kind of came back and said, Motown kind of deliberately uh, maybe played up their mm. their um, poor roots to make more of a Cinderella story, mm, perhaps, okay. and yeah. kind of make much of the fact that they had, you know, come out of a difficult situation. And right. I think it was Diana Ross and Mary Wilson both have come out and kind of said, actually, you know, we weren't as badly off as, <laughs> as perhaps they was portrayed. portrayed. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, certainly they were still in, you know, not... Um, not the most affluent of situations by any means, <laughs> sure. but perhaps Motown played that up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But it's that um, kind of American dream. Yeah, story, ex- right? oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that always that. plays big. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, so okay, we keep getting away from the, the bare facts, <laughs> the track, 
Just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> oh, I did it again. Dana. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, um, so they were signed in 1961. I think that's the third time I've said that. I'm sorry. But <laughs> it's still true. Um, so apparently, though, they didn't do very well for a few years. And they were kind of called around Motown the no-hit Supremes. <laughs> because they just couldn't quite get a hit off the ground for a while there. That's so wonderfully ironic, knowing I know. what we know about them now. <laughs> I know. It's great. So they put out, like, nine releases before finally, with their tenth, which was... Where Did Our Love Go, which is a great classic <laughs> song. In the summer of 1964, that was their first hit. And it was a big hit. It shot to the top of the charts. And they sold two million copies. And that um, set up this streak of hits that they had over the next several years. Um, and actually, I thought this was really cool. That in 1965, they actually set the record for the most consecutive number one hits uh, for an American group, which is especially impressive, uh, given that this is right in the middle of the British invasion. So they're essentially competing with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all these other, you know, British groups, which, of course, we all know that that was massive. <laughs> all those shrieking <laughs> yeah. girls yes, at, yes. The, at Sullivan <laughs> Theater. Um, but the Supremes managed to hold their own during this and really do, you know, just as well, I would think, as mm-hmm. as these groups. So... That really brought it home for me when they they were being compared to groups like the Beatles. And I thought, wow, I never realized the level of their success when I'm seeing them hold their own against groups like that. So yeah, exactly. It is. It's really cool. I hadn't really realized that either. And I hadn't realized how, how condensed their success was in those three years. I mean, between, is it 65 to 67? Uh, 64 to 64. Okay. 64 to 67. So there's just those couple of years where they have these 10 number one hits. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine the pace that they were working at and the unbelievable rise in their fame that would have happened just over those years, their lives would have been turned upside down. And, And I mean, that's their goal, obviously. But just the speed at which that happened to Mm -hmm. produce that many songs and gain that much fame. And it's just incredible to think about what a whirlwind those couple of years would have been. um, Yeah. How how different they would have been out the other end of that. Yeah, exactly. It's a good. And actually, they are. The Supremes are kind of a a good example of of, or a microcosm, I guess, of Motown itself. Because Motown really, I mean, started in 1959 by the you know by the mid to late 70s or so it was really kind of petering out and um they you know yeah they worked at such a pace and they all did i thought that was interesting um you know just yeah the pace that they all worked i mean they just put out song after song after song and yes so many of those were hits for motown and for the supremes but yeah the pace that they were going at was incredible so i'm just gonna you know read off this string of hits between <laughs> 64 and 67. So, as I said, Where Did Our Love Go started it off in 1964 um, and then followed closely by Baby Love, which is a particular favorite of mine. I love that. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I can't resist. I knew you were going to do it. I knew it. <laughs> I was saying that, Heather, that I think this topic is partly just an excuse for me to have been singing Supreme songs for the last two weeks. <laughs> I've had to play at work a bit, but I'm sure not nearly as much as you. <laughs> I do great. love them. That's great. I and I'd like them. to interject that that opening is arguably considered one of the most famous song openings of all time. And I saw that oh. online and I thought, how great is that? I know, right? And I think... I think it was when we were at the museum mm-hmm. that they mentioned that this was another thing about Barry Gordy. I mean, he was a huge perfectionist and he would make his artists yeah. record and record and record and record over and over and over again a track until he thought it was just right. And he would, you know, play with it and edit it and just all of this stuff. But they would have to do take after take. Um, well, apparently, um, Baby Love with that opening, that was one of the ones where I guess in it, they, they released it. And then he heard it and was like, no, I'm still not satisfied. And they pulled it and he made them record it again and they worked on it again. And I guess the original release did not have that opening with the ooh. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so when it was re-released, it it did. And I think, yeah, as you say, that kind of, you know, is one of the things that makes the song yeah and Um, I had no idea about that either and I was mm -hmm. so surprised to read that and I was so surprised from a business perspective I thought how gutsy is this guy to have put a product on market and then go no no no, we're pulling it all back and then re-release I mean that he I'm sure he was taking a financial risk doing that and but it really speaks to the the level of quality he was looking for in songs that were coming out of 
uh, Motown at that time. But yeah, I mean, that's such a big risk to take <laughs> and, and it worked for them. So yeah, it did. Yeah. So Baby Love in 1964, also in 64, uh, Come See About Me. And then 1965, their three big hits were Stop in the Name of Love, which is maybe one of their, maybe the best known, I would think. I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of that big build up that organ you know that, stop <laughs> that sounded great by the way i'm sure it's exactly like the song. i'm gonna listen back to this and be like that is spot on <laughs> i sound just like diana ross <laughs> but even with the hand motion right it right i did that, such yes. a, a figurehead yes. hand motion for that Absolutely. song and yeah <laughs> and then again in 1965, uh, Back in My Arms Again, I Hear a Symphony. 1966, they had hits with You Can't Hurry Love, which is another personal yeah. favorite of mine. Yeah, I love agreed. that one. Um, and You Keep Me Hanging On. 1967, Love Is Here and Now You're Gone. The Happening, which is... <laughs> I love that song too. <laughs> the Happening. <laughs> you know that one? <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. It's so spunky. I'm going to let you sing all of them. Yeah, I'm going to stop because they're... <laughs> no, just, you, no, you should keep going. Uh, and then finally, uh, reflections in 1967. So, I mean, they just had hit after hit after hit in those years, as you say, just a few years. And then kind of by that point they were starting to, you know, things were starting to change. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as we'll see, they kind of uh, petered out after that a little bit and some inter- intergroup dynamics yeah I think some helps. tension arises yeah i think it would be almost impossible to work at that pace with a small group of people and not end up with fissures and fractures oh and yeah friction and all those you know terrible things um yeah yeah so uh, i'm just going to throw in here that mm-hmm. um now it's interesting they didn't really hit it big with that first where did our love go hit until they started working with this uh, songwriting team, uh, Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier. I hope mm-hmm. I'm saying that right. Dozier. And Dozier. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like in Detroit, they always, you know, bastardize. The That's French true. Word. <laughs> they're, so they're, yeah, not pronouncing it correctly. Um, and Eddie Holland. So Holland, Dozier, Holland were kind of a famous, you know, writing and producing team at Motown. And they were the force behind a lot of the Supreme's big hits. Right. Um, so as we mentioned before, uh, Florence Ballard had kind of been originally the group's leader, but Barry Gordy, as I said, particularly liked Diana Ross and he really did particularly like, like her <laughs> <laughs> because we know now, and I guess there were always rumors flying around, yep. but they had a relationship and he, you know, was rather enamored of her. And um, as it turns out, um, her first, daughter i assume her first child yep rhonda was um uh barry gordy's and he was married i think during this time as well so intrigue (laughs) (laughs) trauma in motown oh you know it (laughs) i feel like again you can't have this kind of situation with all of these young attractive people who are becoming stars <laughs> yes. and like doing this glamorous of course there is of course sex of course what else right of course there's gonna be sex <laughs> um so as i say uh gordy was grooming all of the supremes diana in particular mm-hmm. and he saw her as the star so she i think right from the get-go as the supremes was kind of the lead singer and florence ballard took a little bit of a back seat which I mean, in the Dreamgirls movie, they portray that as more of an issue for that kind of character. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it didn't seem like to me that Florence Ballard had a huge problem necessarily with, with singing more backup, especially at first because uh, Mary Wilson and Florence Ballard, their backup was used more. Like you hear them more on those tracks um, and you can kind of hear them individually too. So I think she didn't necessarily mind at first, but maybe as the group grew in success and diana ross clearly became just the star that might have graded a little bit more mm-hmm. well especially when the name changed later oh, well diana yeah. ross and, and the, Supremes. the Supremes. i yeah. can see that being a big splinter oh, that would be uh, tough yeah, being yeah. An issue. but i think uh that florence was probably a strong enough personality that had she really objected that strongly in the beginning she may have fought for some some of her own songs or mm. you know i can see her pushing a little bit more maybe if it was as big of an issue at the beginning yeah. as you mentioned so you know we maybe we don't know but yeah you know. the interesting thing is um like i look at you know we look at 
video clips of them performing on different shows. And I mean, they just performed all over the place. I mean, Ed Sullivan was maybe the first, I think, television appearance for them. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they they were on a lot of TV shows and just all over the place, all over the world. Um, but you see all of these clips like on YouTube, you should look them up. Yes. Really. You should, um, and pictures and things. And they all look, you know, beautiful and glamorous yeah. and the, the, their dresses and their poise and those wigs. <laughs> Just like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So 60s chic. <laughs> but it, it really impresses me even today. I was like, Oh, they're so classy. Know, they're so classy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, classy. They're so classy. <laughs> classy. <laughs> but I was struck by, Diana Ross is the obvious star. Like even in still images, I feel like her presence. Mm. And I mean, she just kind of had this innate um, ability and knowledge of like how to strike a pose, I think, and just how to move on stage. She had presence and the other girls definitely did as well. But I think especially on, on these clips, you know, because everybody back you know, you watch these old clips from the 60s and everybody looks a little less polished than <laughs> than they do on television now. But Diana Ross, I think right from the get-go, she had this, like, she knew what she was doing. She just knew how to work the camera. Yep. And she clearly kind of was the standout star. And that became more and more apparent. And Barry Gordy was fostering that. And um, so, yeah, her star was definitely on the rise. And um, by... Uh, by 1967, as as we said, so that was kind of, you know, that was getting towards the end of their major string of hits. Mm-hmm. And I guess the tension had gotten to such a point and Ballard was having a, a tough time, I think, in her personal life as well. And so in 1967, she either left or was forced out. That's not, you know, we don't really Clear. know either yeah. way. Um, and she was replaced by uh, a young lady called Cindy Birdsong, which is just the best name for her. Ridiculously <laughs> appropriate. Yes, it I is. I thought it was a typo when I first read that. <laughs> there is no way that woman's name is Birdsong. <laughs> but that is unlikely. It was. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was a stage name. I don't I, know. I wondered about that as well. I hope it's not. I d- it didn't say anything about no. it being a. So I, eh. I you know, who, who knows? It's just so great. It really is. <laughs> um, so Cindy Birdsong came on the scene and Ballard left. And I mean, she she did get a, a hefty payout, I guess, from Barry Gordy. Um, and I think she, you know, we read she attempted a solo career that didn't really pick up and go very well, very far. She had, uh, I think, three children um, and what turned out to be kind of an unhappy marriage. She had mm-hmm. struggles with depression and alcohol and health issues and very sadly she died in 19 uh what 76 1976 and she was only 32 right which is horrible yeah and it's particularly horrible for us because that's close to our (laughs) age and we were thinking oh god to have you know had this life and had these successes and then to either see it all slip away or give it up and then know and by dying so young and no, so it's, tragically that's it's really kind of depressing mm-hmm. to think about yeah. yeah yeah so and um i think you had been struck by some of the facts from her her funeral and i mean of course you know all of the big people from motown came yeah there were there were so many names that we still recognize today at her funeral and it mm-hmm. kind of speaks to that milieu that they were working within um because it was aretha franklin's father who said the funeral um like like the sermon conducted and, it, yes yeah. conducted the funeral and the four tops were some of her pall pallbearers yeah um i kind of love that i know fact. i thought they would have just looked so great as pallbearers <laughs> so, so classy and i would and love sad. that to have yeah four tops right exactly and uh <laughs> but i was struck by how many other names names throughout all of their history right I mean Smokey Robinson was one of the people to discover them and and you have all these other characters and I thought what a great like community or group mm. of people it almost reminds me of Paris in the 20s with you know, oh, all, these, yeah. all these writers like it's, everyone's just feeding off of everyone else's creative energy and people are competing and people are collaborating and it's just this like huge sort of mess of like creative people producing all these these great works and so I think of Motown kind of as that same like broiling I know why you're thinking talent. Of, Heather and I both recently <laughs> rewatched uh, Midnight in Paris <laughs> the so, movie it's so good yeah. <laughs> Paris in the 20s Yay. especially if you're into literature you yeah. 
yeah. you should give it a oh, viewing. Yeah, it's so really great. Tom yeah. Hiddleston. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's for another podcast. Hey, digression. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, so Ballard leaves in 1967, um, and the same year, Holland does your Holland. Those guys left Motown as well. Right. And the I think it was the Rolling Stone article again mentions the fact that by this point, you're kind of getting this the rise of soul in R&B and so the smooth sophistication as they say <laughs> of acts like the Supremes and maybe some of the other Motown acts was starting to maybe become a little bit passe that kind mm. of glamorous you know the white gloves and the sequined evening gowns um, were maybe starting to to go a little bit out of style so by 1968 I think deliberately obviously deliberately the Supremes um started putting out more kind of as actually all of Motown did, they started putting out more kind of socially conscious songs. You know, you think about Marvin Gaye and a lot of the songs that he came out with. And so love child in 1968 was a hit for the Supremes. And that was kind of a bold change of style for them. And it was a a look at illegitimacy at the Mm -hmm. time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Diana Ross is singing about this, this illegitimate child that she was and doesn't necessarily want to have with mm. with a lover and you kind of wonder about right <laughs> about her personal you know situation with Barry Gordy I like that you call it bold because they talked about how it was um not it was not veiled references um to that it was it was rather obvious or they Mm -hmm. spoke very openly in the song about that situation and that was very different for that time because usually it was all euphemisms and you wouldn't speak out very openly about that no but i mean it was a sign of the times you know by by you know the late 60s and i like that they get political you know yeah maybe some more of their opinions are coming through that's right they can speak their mind a little bit more and i I like that what's going on as marvin might say Right. So, okay. So they have this kind of change of style, but by this point, Diana Ross, I mean, her star is, is on the rise, as I said. And, um, I was watching, I think it was a documentary, a Motown documentary and Barry Gordy was talking about Diana Ross and how he, I guess, right from the get go and probably maybe she did too, especially as he was grooming her, um, saw her as a solo star eventually. Mm. And they were kind of always, you know, thinking about that next step for her career. And by um, by the end of the 60s, I think she was thinking it was getting to be time to maybe move on and launch her solo career. So Diana Ross left the Supremes in January of 1970 to start her solo career, which eventually, of course, was hugely successful. And she is still a pretty big name today. I mean, she's getting up there, but, you know, <laughs> she's still, you know... A major force. Yeah. Um, so Diana Ross takes off and she is replaced by Jean Terrell. And uh, I should just mention too that the last hit that the Supremes had with Diana Ross was Someday We'll Be Together in 1969, which of course is a slightly melancholy, mm-hmm. you know, sweetly sad tune to end things on. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I mentioned eventually diana ross of course as we all know hit it really big on her own but at first she was kind of overshadowed by the supremes they had another couple of hits that you know kind of did much better than diana ross was doing at first so up the ladder to the roof was a hit of theirs in 1970 and then also in 1970 another favorite of mine actually stoned love that's another good opening actually we should Maybe I'll play a little bit of it in the podcast. So <laughs> enjoy the first few seconds of Stoned Love. Stoned Love. Wasn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> point you know they had another couple of hits the supremes ross her star is starting to really take off as a solo artist and the supremes are maybe starting to struggle a little bit and apparently at this point barry gordy by 1970 i think that was when he moved motown to la out of detroit out of the motor city Mm. unfortunately away from its roots away from its roots Yeah. yeah but he had dreams of a you know a bigger uh production 
Empire, I guess, and he was looking into television and movies, and mm. he did have some success with that yeah. with Diana Ross, um, The Wiz, and Lady Sings the Blues, which I've always meant to see, and now <laughs> I really have to see that movie because she was nominated, I think, for an Oscar for her role as Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. We'll have to watch that together. Yes, we will. Right. What a good idea. Um, so by this point, Barry Gordy is kind of thinking bigger thoughts of Hollywood and movies and television. And apparently maybe there was starting to be a little bit of a lack of support from Motown and Barry Gordy for a lot of the original artists. And I guess the Supremes were feeling this as well. So they kind of, you know, they still hung in there through the early seventies, but, um, by 1976, they were really kind of petering out and their last number one hit was I'm gonna let my heart do the walking in 1976 and by that point Mary Wilson who was the last original member of the group and I guess had been kind of holding things together she decided you know maybe it was time to move on as well and she left for a solo career of her own in 1977 and the group officially disbanded Mm -hmm. so I mean talk about a what was they were signed in 61 yep and mm. disbanded in 77. Mm. So not a, not a mm. super long... Mm. 16 years. Right? Yeah. yeah. Which actually, that's longer than the Beatles, I guess. <laughs> it's true. When you think about that's it. True. When you think about Hollywood, that, that seems like a long It does. Relationship. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, geez, look at One Direction. They lost their... <laughs> what's his name? Oh, he dear. left. Is it Harry Styles or one of the other guys? <laughs> I don't know I don't even know. Names. I don't know. <laughs> oh, we're so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you ask me the, about the Backstreet Boys, I might uh, really pitch in, but uh, well, a lot more than One Direction. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, they were more our 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 generation, our generation, yeah, yeah. or the Spice Girls. Pop, they weren't together pop for that boy long. bands. No, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so in Hollywood, I guess that that is a decent amount of time. Yeah, it is. But, and uh, they had yeah. so many hits. I mean, it yeah. really is amazing how many lasting songs they had. Um, so, okay. They disbanded in 1977. There were a couple of attempts over the years at reunions. Uh, the first was in 1983 at the Motown 2025 event, which was, I guess, kind of the 25th anniversary for Motown. And it was a big, again, I remember them talking about it at the Motown museum that, you know, Michael Jackson performed. And of course, by that point he was hitting it big on his own as well. And that you know, spangly glove was a big <laughs> deal. Um, but uh, apparently, so there was an attempted reunion of the Supremes with like <laughs> Diana Ross and um, Mary Wilson and I guess Cindy Birdsong. And uh, unfortunately, it ended in embarrassment when Diana Ross pushed Mary Wilson's microphone away from her face. <laughs> and I guess that wasn't aired in the in the television special, but Thank I mean goodness. the live audience obviously saw that and reporters all saw it and picked right. it up and it was widely reported. So I guess, you know, there was not a lot of love lost by that point between no. the original members of the group, which is it's too bad. It's sad. I remember cringing when I read that. Oh, During no. our research, I went, Oh God, and you you know it's being filmed and you know it's being <laughs> performed live and oh, just, someday heather yeah. someday i'm gonna push your microphone out of your face <laughs> we're, we're podcast moguls yes. so we'll just, uh, push it out you'll hear a recording where uh, my voice will just disappear we'll just it's our attempt at a reunion after like 30 years <laughs> to great success stream right. of podcasting and i'm a huge diva yeah. you're such a diva now well it's, it's not true. a big stretch no. it is true <laughs> but i'd like to speak a little bit to their cultural significance oh my gosh um, yes. just a just you know two little points that really start me one is that i loved the emphasis on the elegance and classiness of of their act and of them and their appearance and um any any resource that we use during our research mentioned that they all oh, touched yeah. on that and i thought it was really neat because um one of the articles we read talked about how that appealed to both teens and adults and i thought what a smart move i don't know if that was something right, they yeah. meant like that it was intentional but it meant that their market was so much larger, right? They're not selling just to teens or just to adults. They're selling to both. And so it's a great business decision. But I also like that it was crossing generations, that it had this like deep, wide-seated appeal. Um, so I thought that was really neat. And 
and uh you know something that maybe generations generations could share together like you and your dad and Mm -hmm. um but I also really love the culture just to be clear I wasn't around in the 60s no (laughs) no, but now you and your dad yes (laughs) yes um and so I also really loved reading about the cultural significance of their appearance on the Ed Sullivan show so right particularly their first appearance because um they were some of the first really elegant and successful black women on his show or on almost any major talk show right and they said up to this point usually black people were portrayed as janitors or maids or in these very subservient roles um and they weren't the headlining stars or anything like that um and so for so many uh, celebrities today this was hugely influential so oprah winfrey talks about how that influenced her um and Whoopi goldberg Mm -hmm. mentions and Mm -hmm. and all these young black girls were just struck by how wonderful this was and how inspirational this was so that was a big moment in in american television and north american television absolutely yeah i wanted to make sure we got that yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah i mean i yeah you can't you can't um you can't emphasize enough how right. how significant they were, you know, in the history of of not only popular music right. but right. American history yeah, and just world relations. history. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, they had a, a huge impact. Uh, yeah, when you watch those clips from Oprah when she talks about <laughs> how much the Supremes and Diana Ross meant to her mm. as a little girl, it's you know. Yeah. We wouldn't have Oprah if it weren't for Diana Ross. Right, right. What? So, yeah. It'd be awful. Yeah. You have to have those trailblazers and <laughs> yeah. you know, leading other people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think just kind of, I don't know if you have too much more. The The last thing, and it's not a, the last thing I was going to mention was it's not a, <laughs> it's a little sad actually. Oh. The kind of, the, uh, the final attempt at a reunion Oh, yeah. 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 So apparently in 2000, the spring of 2000, Diana Ross announced the Supremes Return to Love tour. And I guess she did extend the invitation to uh, Mary Wilson and Cindy Birdsong to join her on this tour. And they declined. But the reason they declined is kind of understandable because I guess Diana Ross was set to earn like... I don't know, like $20 million or something off this. And they were only offering each of the other women like $3 million a pop. Yeah, so reading that too. you got to see why the other ladies were like, uh, we're good. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> So Diana Ross, I guess, kind of underestimating just how much the other original or almost original members of the group would mean to the audience decided to go ahead with uh, two other women who had joined the group after she had left the Supremes Um, and they went on this tour, but I guess many of the locations, they only sold like half the tickets and then the whole thing was canceled halfway through because people were really disappointed that it wasn't a true reunion Mm, uh, really of the original Supremes. And she unfortunately kind of underestimated how much influence the group as a whole had. I mean, yeah, Diana Ross's star was and still is, is kind of the brightest out of all of them but the power of that group that original group Mm -hmm. combined Mm -hmm. um the fact that people you know they didn't just want to come out to see diana ross and like a couple of you know latter-day supremes (laughs) they wanted to see yeah Yeah. they wanted to see the supremes the original supremes and i think again that speaks to just how meaningful that group really was and Mm -hmm. what a big cultural impact it had Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the nostalgia that would have evoked, right? It's not oh, the yeah. same to see someone else singing the songs. No. If you've seen the originals or the almost originals, you know, you want to see, if they're still available, that's who you want to see. So it would bring them back, I think, to when they first heard those songs and or first saw them perform. And you, know, you want to relive that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I don't, do you have anything else? That's, that's it for me. That's it for Covered me. my notes. We just, we keep intending to keep these down to like, <laughs> just, we're just, we, you know, we're just going to do like half an hour, Heather. We're just going to keep it down to half an hour. And here we are at it. like 52 minutes. Oh dear. So, oh dear. Yeah. We apologize. Wow. We'll keep working on that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And as I mentioned, we will post all of our resources, the links to the articles that we've read and some clips, um, on YouTube of, um, you know appearances of the supremes and maybe some kind of documentary clips that kind of thing as well so check uh in and around the podcast wherever you find (laughs) it for those resources 
And uh, until next time, I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And thanks for listening. Yeah, great having you. Bye.